Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 79, Crescendo. Now, first, uh, I want to give a shout out to Lea Petrova, a patron who ha- patron who has returned and started pledging again. Because, uh, yeah, I always understand. We always get a nice mix. People coming and leaving, financial situations change, all that kind of stuff. So nice to see someone come back now that they can support us again. So thanks so much, Lea. Okay, last time, we covered a lot of ground. The Ottomans defeated Venice in yet another war taking what remained of their overseas territories minus Crete and Cyprus. The Ottomans also fully annexed the two-thirds of Hungary which they controlled. Repeated attempts by the Habsburgs to go on the offensive against the Ottomans and gain full control of the Hungarian crown went nowhere. As a result, the Ottomans and Habsburgs settled into a new normal, reinforcing their border and preparing for the next fight. In the east, the long Ottoman-Safavid War finally came to an end, with the Ottomans annexing Iraq and splitting Georgia and Armenia. This new border, rather than being fortified like the one I just mentioned, was effectively demilitarized, indicating that both empires wished for security and to really not have to focus on this border, so they could send their focus elsewhere. Lastly, we saw ongoing battles between the Ottomans and the Portuguese in the Indian Ocean, Red Sea, and Persian Gulf, as the Ottomans made some gains closer to home while failing to dislodge their European rivals in India itself. Sultan Suleiman is now 60 years old, but he still has fight left in him. But for now, he's focusing on administrative reforms and other domestic affairs, more on that in another episode, uh, in Constantinople. Uh, He hasn't left there for a number of years by this point. Still, events were always progressing elsewhere. You'll remember that the young Hungarian king, John Sigismund Zapolya, had, along with his mother, who was running things as he was too young, agreed to hand over the Hungarian crown to Ferdinand in exchange for a large sum of money and some land. The two then settled in Poland in exile. However, being recognized as the sole ruler of Hungary really did nothing to help Ferdinand, and in 1556, the Hungarian Diet met in what's now Cluj, the capital of Transylvania, and decided to again recognize the now 16-year-old John as their king. I couldn't find any mention of just what role the Ottomans may have played in this, but presumably they would be happy to have their vassal and a young man, thus hopefully easier to control, contesting the Hungarian crown from their enemy, Ferdinand. In Wallachia, things are just getting interesting again after decades of relative quiet throughout much of the 16th century. You'll remember that the voivoda there, Radu Paisi, had attempted to secretly align himself with Ferdinand before being briefly deposed by anti-Ottoman forces invading from Transylvania. Well, he got back into power and killed everyone responsible. But he had other problems. 
His brother lived in Constantinople, and from there was able to influence the Ottoman government to support him against his brother, Radu. In 1544, Suleiman asked for Radu's son and co-ruler to come to the capital as a hostage. When the boy didn't arrive in time, Suleiman decided to put his brother Merkea on the throne after all. Radu settled into a kind of comfortable retirement uh, after he was kicked out, while Merkea had to deal with more attempted invasions from the north. This led to many boyars being killed and many more fleeing, but brother Merkea kept control. In 1552, a Habsburg pretender to the throne, the, well, the throne, Voivoda, whatever you want to call them, uh, along with the Habsburg army, entered Wallachia only to be defeated. More boyars were put to death before Merkea was ultimately deposed anyway. But Merkea got the throne back with the help of the Voivoda of Moldavia. But that same Voivoda then deposed Merkea after deciding that he wasn't trustworthy. Uh, but still, once the Moldavian ruler died in 1558, Merkea was allowed by Suleiman to return and rule once again in Wallachia leading to many of the boyars who were still alive to, well, get out while they could, because you may have been picking up on this, but Merke has a bit of a tendency to kill all of his boyars. But this time, Merke offered them forgiveness if they would simply return to his capital and pay him the taxes like they did in the good old days. Many of them did so, and everything seemed grand, except... Well, until the Ottoman officials went home, and then when no one was really paying attention, Merkea had them all killed anyways. But Merkea himself finally died in 1559, and was succeeded by his 13-year-old son, Peter. Unsurprisingly, the boyars saw this as their moment for revenge, and so a series of battles took place, uh, in which Peter ultimately prevailed with strong Ottoman backing. But the bigger picture here, is that Wallachia is unstable and engaging in some pretty serious internal bloodletting, which is both good and bad for the Ottomans. Bad because the Ottomans used Wallachian soldiers a lot, and good because, well, if Wallachia is weak, it's less likely or able to ally with the Habsburgs against the Ottomans. Okay, so now we're kind of caught up on what's been going on with Wallachia over the last like decade and a half. Now let's get back to what else was happening. Now again, Suleiman is still staying in Constantinople for these years, but there are still major Ottoman advances by his admirals in the Mediterranean. The first of these during this period was in 1558, three years after the Ottoman Safavid War ended, and so three years since any major Ottoman land operations. The attack was on the Balearic Islands, all the way in the western Mediterranean near Spain. Today, they're a part of Spain and, well, famous for partying in Ibiza, if you kind of are familiar with uh, European teenagers' party tendencies. But those are the islands we're talking about. Now, the Ottomans had actually launched an attack on them all the way back in 1501 in response to calls for help by the Muslim Moors who were still fighting against the Spanish kingdom at that time. Now, the Ottomans had engaged in periods of relatively intense raiding on these islands in the 1530s and then again in the 1550s. So, you know, we, we don't really think of the Ottomans doing much in the Western Mediterranean, but they were actually pretty involved, you know, attacking where they could, finding spots where they could uh, jump in, steal some things and do some damage. 
But now, with the Ottoman French alliance back on, Suleiman wanted to distract the Habsburgs without disrupting the careful balance of peace in Central Europe. Remember, both sides were really reinforcing the border between Austria and Hungary, the other part of Hungary that Austria controlled. And so the best place for Suleiman to kind of do his part in his French alliance was on the seas. The original plan was to help the French attack Corsica, which had been taken by, uh, from Genoa rather by the French with Ottoman assistance five years previously and then been recaptured by the Genoese. But the fleet that was sent to help them instead went to the Balearic Islands, as mentioned, which pissed off Suleiman to a great extent because it made him look bad to his allies, but, well, he was far away in Constantinople. The fleet first attacked some Habsburg-controlled cities in southern Italy as they kind of made their way across the Mediterranean. And this time, they actually took the main stronghold on the island of the, the main Balearic island and sold its population into slavery. So this was a far more successful raid than the previous ones. They actually kind of controlled some major fortifications there. And here, I want to mention that while I haven't gone into much detail about it, the Ottoman Navy well, I guess I kind of just mentioned it, they, they really were raiding throughout the Mediterranean Sea throughout this period. Uh, again, sometimes engaging in you know, major naval battles, other times just landing and stealing what they could. And the result of all of this was that, arguably, during Suleiman's reign, the Ottoman navy was the premier power in the Mediterranean. Even when facing combined naval forces of many Christian powers, the Ottomans usually prevailed. By 1560, in light of Christian losses during the last Ottoman-Venetian War, their failed attack on Ottoman-controlled Algiers, and now the loss of the Balearic Islands, well, you could say that the Christian powers in the Mediterranean were looking and feeling quite vulnerable. In addition, a major shift in European politics had just occurred. From 1554 to 1556, Charles V began to abdicate his various positions, one by one, before finally dying in 1558. Remember, Charles was a Habsburg, and was Holy Roman Emperor, King of Spain, Lord of the Netherlands, Duke of Burgundy, Archduke of Austria, and many other titles. In other words, he was a one-man European superpower, one of the only forces who could possibly challenge the Ottomans. But in his life, his attention was usually elsewhere. With his death, his son Philip II took over as King of Spain, while Charles's brother Ferdinand became the new Holy Roman Emperor. Of course, as we've seen really, it was somewhat impractical for a single man to rule the far-flung Spanish Empire, including much of the Americas if you remember, along with such an enormous chunk of Europe. But what remained to be seen now that uh, sort of his empire was divided, between his brother and his son was whether Ferdinand, now with his sole focus in Central Europe, I mean, he's now only Archduke of Austria and Holy Roman Emperor, uh, whether he would prove a more capable foe to the Ottomans. But before we would learn this, back in the Mediterranean, Philip II of Spain wanted to assert his authority in that area, and so he spoke with the Pope to arrange a Christian coalition to retake Tripoli in North Africa from the Ottomans. The fleet they assembled, along with ten to 12,000 soldiers, landed near Tripoli, but immediately ran into problems. 
the army was beset by illness and didn't have enough water. And then, just to top it all off, the fleet was hit by a freak storm which did substantial damage. As a result, they all picked up and decided to sort of change their attack from Tripoli to the island of Jerba. They quickly took the island and began to construct a fortress there. It was at about that time that an Ottoman fleet arrived, much to their surprise. That Ottoman fleet made quick work of the Christian fleet, sinking the majority of their ships. Now, the Christian forces were huddled inside their recently completed fortress, where they were besieged for three months before finally surrendering. And so once again, the Ottomans had a tremendous victory. Once again, they demonstrated their absolute dominance of the Mediterranean. But elsewhere, their naval dominance was faltering. A year before their decisive victory at Jerba, an Ottoman force landed on the island of Bahrain in the Persian Gulf to attempt to take it from the Portuguese and their allies, who had dominated it and used it as a real base to dominate the Persian Gulf. The siege initially went well, but soon enemy reinforcements snuck up behind the Ottomans and captured their fleet, trapping them much as the Christian forces were so recently trapped on the island of Jerba. Still, the Ottomans held on, at least until plague struck them as well as the Christians and forced the Ottomans to surrender. After previous failures to take Hormuz and thereby really dominate the Persian Gulf, this loss was really the end of the Ottoman dream of making the Persian Gulf an Ottoman lake. True, they still controlled Basra at the tip of the Gulf, but essentially with the loss in Bahrain, they had to finally accept Portugal's dominance of the area. Now this marked a major shift in Ottoman strategy. While they would still support Portugal's enemies in the area, with this loss, they really abandoned their attempt to challenge Portugal in the Indian Ocean, a dream that went all the way back to the Mamluks before the Ottomans even were anywhere near uh, the Indian Ocean. An unspoken agreement now kind of settled in, whereby the Ottomans could dominate the overland trade from east to west, while Portugal would have the sea trade, which of course was becoming much more lucrative as it's much more efficient, even if you're going around Africa. The one area where the Ottomans continued to invest heavily was in the Red Sea, which they could still safely dominate. But there was one exception to this, because even if the Ottomans weren't going to challenge the Portuguese directly, they could still do it indirectly. Six years after their loss in Bahrain in 1565, the Ottomans sent the first of many expeditions to the Aceh Sultanate in Indonesia, giving them military technology and training to help them resist Portuguese expansion in that part of the world. So there were still things that the Ottomans could do to limit Portugal's imperial expansion, but, well, there was only so much, really. Back in Central Europe, that same year, the Ottomans were failing to take Bahrain, 1559. John Sigismund Zapolia's mother, and, well, the person running things, finally died. This meant that the now 19-year-old could rule alone as king of Hungary. His first move was actually to propose marrying Ferdinand's daughter while also, well, claiming the portion of Hungary which Ferdinand controlled as well. This deal was pretty safely rejected by Ferdinand. He was in no way interested in giving up his claim to Hungary. 
But in spite of this back and forth, peace between uh, the Hungarian king and the Holy Roman Emperor and claimed Hungarian king held on. Over the coming years, in any case, John was rather distracted, we could say, by dealing with uprisings in Transylvania. But then, in 1564, the death of Ferdinand changed the situation. He was succeeded as Archduke of Austria and Holy Roman Emperor by his son Maximilian II, who, side note, married his cousin, the daughter of Charles V, setting the stage for generations of awkward-looking inbred Habsburgs. Just look up pictures of 19th century Habsburgs. It's super awkward. Anyways, Maximilian was also, shortly later, crowned King of Hungary in Habsburg-controlled Estergom. And so, really, despite the death of Ferdinand, well, the Habsburgs weren't going to give up their claim to the Hungarian throne. It was simply far too convenient and important for them. But on the death of Ferdinand, John's forces decided that this was the time to launch an offensive to retake as much of the portion of Hungary he controlled as possible. They did this, but soon afterwards, a Habsburg counteroffensive retook much of the territory, ending with a treaty between Maximilian and John. It had John once again renounced the title King of Hungary in exchange for marrying Maximilian's sister and being recognized as the rightful ruler of Transylvania. So, not exactly the same, but a, a similar kind of deal to what happened between John and Ferdinand. But there was one big problem here, and that problem was the Ottomans. They were absolutely not happy to see their vassal give up such a prestigious title to their enemy, and so they forced John to renounce the treaty. The Ottomans then worked with John to retake more Hungarian territory, while Suleiman informed John that he was going to come to Hungary shortly to sort of oversee the situation. But while all that had been going on, the Ottomans were engaged in yet another major, major offensive in the Mediterranean. Now, this particular engagement gets to the very long-standing Ottoman rivalry with the Knights Hospitaller. Now, Remember, the Knights Hospitaller had been formed to protect Jerusalem after it was captured in the Crusades. But after the fall of the Crusader states, they moved to Rhodes, where they hung out for a while until Rhodes was taken by the Ottomans, all the way back in 1522. And at that point, they fled Rhodes, and Malta became their new kind of main headquarters. And they eventually became known more as the Knights of Malta. Now, the Ottomans had been putting pressure on them for years at this point. Back in 1551, the Ottomans attempted to conquer Malta, but failed. Instead, they moved their focus to Gozo, the slightly smaller island just directly north of Malta. Gozo surrendered within days, and its more than 6,000 residents were sold into slavery. The Maltese on the main island responded by reinforcing their fortifications in preparation for the next Ottoman attack they knew was coming, eventually. That same Ottoman fleet, after conquering Gozo, turned its attention to Tripoli, a former Spanish Habsburg base which had been given to the Knights of Malta back in 1530, which they had attempted to retake back in uh, the Battle of Jerba, but yeah, we're a little out of order here, but you get the picture. The Ottomans ran down, laid siege to the city, and this quickly escalated into a bit of an awkward situation between them and their French allies. Because, well, the Ottomans really hated the Knights of Malta, but 
a lot of those knights were French. And so attacking them was a bit strange because, well, when they signed the alliance with France, they had a list of sort of enemies they were going to fight together, and the Knights of Malta were not on that list. Still, the Ottoman commander wasn't about to sort of just give up all this. And so the French commander who was overseeing things was very upset. And the Ottoman commander just said, okay, well, we're just going to keep you kind of under house arrest so you can't complain to Suleiman. But in any case, Tripoli fell fairly quickly and the French intervention managed to get the French knights at least to leave and return to Malta. And then, of course, as we know, the Christians soon tried to retake Tripoli at the Battle of Jerba and, well, it failed. And now with all these events kind of taken together, it meant that the Ottomans were really poised to dominate the Mediterranean. What they really needed now was Malta. Because during this period, and really throughout its history, Malta has been a vital strategic port and sort of location due to its location right in the middle of the Mediterranean. You could think of it's between Sicily and you know, uh, basically Tunisia, the bit of North Africa that sticks up into the Mediterranean. In fact, in World War II, Malta was famously called an unsinkable aircraft carrier because it allowed the British to sort of project power throughout the Mediterranean and, well, you can't sink an island. For the Ottomans, though, taking Malta would allow them to further entrench their dominance in the eastern Mediterranean, while also, importantly, allowing them to better project their power into the western Mediterranean. But beyond that, it would also make it much easier for the Ottomans to attack Sicily, then southern Italy, then Rome. The Ottomans had long dreamed of conquering Rome for its symbolic value, and Malta was a stepping stone in that direction. However, five years had passed since the devastation of the Battle of Gerba, which was time enough for the Christian powers to rebuild their fleets and regain their strength. And in fact, the Ottomans weren't really interested in going on the offensive at that moment, but with the Knights of Malta constantly disrupting Ottoman shipping from their base to increasing effect, they were just getting better and better at it, well, Suleiman had had enough and ordered the Knights of Malta annihilated. None other than Queen Elizabeth I said, quote, If the Turks should prevail against the Isle of Malta, it is uncertain what further peril might follow to the rest of Christendom. End quote. So clearly there were deep concerns. The Ottomans set out in March 1565 with perhaps the most impressive armada in their history, consisting of around 40,000 men in total. Facing them, the Knights of Malta were well prepared. They had been reinforcing their fortress for more than a decade, but they also knew that the Ottoman force was leaving and heading their way, and so they had time to prepare food stores and strip the island of any food the Ottomans might use, and even poison the wells. Still, they had only about 6,000 defenders on the island. In other words, this was going to be a truly epic showdown. Now, the Ottoman command was split three ways, and so early on there was a lot of disagreement about how to plan the attack. Ultimately, they set up camp near the main Maltese fortifications and began their bombardment. A Spanish relief soldier said of the Ottoman camp, quote, The darkness of the night may become as bright as day due to the vast quantity of artificial fires. So bright was it indeed that we could see St. Elmo quite clearly. The gunners of St. Angelo, 
were able to lay and train their pieces upon the advancing Turks, who were picked off by the light of their fires. End quote. To be clear, St. Elmo's not a person, it's a fortress. Anyways, by late June, the Ottomans captured their first fort, the aforementioned St. Elmo, by essentially reducing it to rubble. The Ottomans lost half their Janissaries, 6,000 of their soldiers, while the Maltese lost around 1,500 of the 6,000 defenders they had. All that is to say, the taking of the first of many fortresses was a bloody affair on all sides. The Ottomans now turned to the other fortresses on the various small peninsulas in the main harbor of Malta. One by one, they bombarded them with tremendous force and attempted amphibious assaults. By September, both sides had taken terrible losses. The Maltese were considering abandoning most of their remaining fortifications. With winter approaching, though, the Ottomans searched for a place to wait out the season, but were scared off from their chosen town by its artillery. Then, a Christian relief force of 8,000 soldiers finally arrived and surprised and attacked the Ottomans, killing them as they fled in panic. The Ottomans finally decided to cut their losses, return to their ships, and go home. Both they and the Maltese had lost around a third of their men, though obviously that translated into a much higher number for the Ottomans. And with that loss, finally the Ottoman war machine had been turned back in the Mediterranean. The victory at Malta was celebrated throughout Europe. Still, it did little to change the fact that the Ottomans remained dominant in most of the Mediterranean. Also, remember that while the Ottomans had been very active on the seas during this period, by 1566 they hadn't engaged in a land offensive in 11 years. That was about to change. The situation in Hungary was still evolving, as it always did, but without a doubt, the Habsburgs remained a threat there, especially as long as the young Maximilian continued to claim the title King of Hungary. And so, in May of 1566, the now 72-year-old Suleiman set out once again for the long march to Hungary at the head of a massive army of more than 100,000 and perhaps as many as 150,000 soldiers. When he arrived in Belgrade 49 days later, he met with John II Sigismund, king of Hungary, and resolved together to attack the fortress of Segetvar, as it was controlled by the Habsburg Ban of Croatia, a major threat at the time. The main Ottoman army arrived there on August 5th. That's 96 days, just to give you a little idea how long it took the Ottomans to get all the way to Hungary from Constantinople when marching with the army. The castle was defended by only around 2,300, mostly Hungarians and Croatians. But what they defended was a truly impressive fortress divided into three parts, each separate and connected by little causeways and all surrounded by a vast moat. Check out an image on the website because it's really a fascinating looking fortress, though unfortunately it doesn't really look like that today. My old Hungarian roommate, that was her hometown, and I visited there maybe five years ago, and you can still see the fortress walls, but all the water's gone. It loses the effect a bit. Anyways, shortly after arriving, the Ottomans began a bombardment and made their first general assault on the wall. But the defenders were dogged, determined, and so the attack failed. 
The fighting dragged on for a month as the defenders gradually retreated from the first two fortifications into the final remaining one, the Old Town. But even as Suleiman offered surrender terms, he even offered that the Ban of Croatia could continue to rule Croatia as an as a Ottoman vassal, but they refused. Then, on September 6th, Suleiman the Magnificent, or the Lawgiver, as he's called in Turkey, died in his tent of natural causes. He had ruled the empire for 46 years and led it on 13 major campaigns. His death had to be kept a complete and total secret because the commanders knew that the Ottoman soldiers, well, who knows what they would do if they found out that Suleiman was dead, whether they would continue to fight or whether they would simply run away, flee, go home, lose all heart. A runner was dispatched to inform Suleiman's son Selim in Anatolia as quickly as possible before word could get out and potentially start a civil war, as we've seen happen so many times. But in the meantime, the battle still raged. The day after Suleiman's death, another all-out assault was launched and what really had been a fortress but was now more rubble than anything. The Ottomans rushed into the old town as it burned, but as they moved up a narrow bridge towards the castle, they were fired upon and surprised by a mortar filled with scrap metal, which acted like a giant shotgun and killed hundreds of them at a time. The Croatian bond leading the defense was finally killed by an arrow to the head after sustaining two musket wounds. Soon, though, the Ottomans took the castle. But shortly after that, a massive explosion ripped the entire area apart. The defenders had set a fuse on a 3,000-pound magazine of powder, just as they knew defeat was imminent. Thousands of Ottomans died instantly. Ultimately, though, the defenders of Sigetvar died nearly to a man, while the Ottomans lost between twenty and 35,000 soldiers, in addition to many high-ranking officers, janissaries, and pashas. The Ottomans had taken the fortress, but at a terrible cost. With the Sultan dead, the need to ensure a smooth transition of power to his son Selim meant that there was no way the campaign could continue. And so after declaring victory, the Ottoman army made its way back to Constantinople. French clergyman and statesman Cardinal Richelieu, very famous, was reported to have described it as, quote, the battle that saved civilization. Now, that's definitely an overstatement, but... To be frank, with an army of that size, Vienna certainly was in mortal danger had the Ottomans been able to continue. But with the death of Suleiman, the future was suddenly very, very unknown. And with that, the narrative portion of Season 4 comes to an end. In the next episode, I'm going to discuss what was happening in Bulgaria during these nearly two centuries of Ottoman rule and... Then I'll go to what I expect will be about two episodes, kind of wrapping up and summarizing this season before we begin season five, Ottoman Decline. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. Check out the Bulgarian language version of the podcast at bghistorypodcast.com and wherever you get podcasts. <laughs>